This is Undark. We're a science magazine published by the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 4. I'm David Corcoran. Our cover story this time is about goats, uh, some very special goats that our writer Megan Molteni calls walking, bleeding embodiments of one of the most divisive scientific controversies of our time. Megan joins us now to talk about them. Hi, Megan. Hi, David. So uh, set the scene for us, why don't you? Uh, Where did you meet uh, Laurel and Grace, the goats? Well, I met them at the University of California, Davis. Uh, They have a goat facility with a barn and outdoor pens and a a milking line. And I actually visited them during the spring. Uh, It was kidding season. So there were new baby goats, just two weeks old, kind of running around. They they have this high energy for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then then they all have to take a nap. So they all just crash together. But otherwise, kind of typical young goats, right? Yeah, typical goats. They're, you know, have these knobby knees and they have really sweet temperament. The, they have a mix of breeds at UC Davis. So some of them are white, some are kind of a chestnut brown, some are black and white. And they, they all have um, little collars with a tag on it that has their animal number and their name. Um, and uh, tell us about the scientists who are raising these goats and what they hope to accomplish. Sure. So the Dairy Goat Research Facility at Davis currently houses about 220 goats. But of that herd, there's a smaller cohort, about 30 animals, that are being raised by two scientists. Their names are Elizabeth Maga and James Murray. And they actually carry a human gene that codes for human lysozyme. And lysozyme is an antimicrobial enzyme commonly found in tears and saliva and breast milk. And lysozymes actually kind of work on the front lines of the immune system. They attack bacterial cells that can cause infections and diarrhea. And lysozyme occurs naturally in the milk of all mammals. But in, in humans, it's especially concentrated. So these, these goats actually produce human lysozyme at about the rate of 3,000 times the amount that would be found just normally in goat milk. So they, they're producing at the rate that a human would produce lysozyme in human breast milk. And uh, what do they hope to do with these goats so that have the the uh, the gene? It's called HLZ, right, for human lysozyme? Yeah, that's correct. That's the name of the gene. And what they hope to do with it is that lysozyme has this kind of protective effect. So it's really important uh, for developing the immune system in infants and in, in young children. And there are parts of the world, you know, in developing countries where – Young children, you know, don't have access to breast milk for whatever reason, and they have really high rates of diarrhea in those places. And because of the protective effect of the lysozyme in milk, what they're hoping to accomplish is if you can get goats on the ground in places where there are high rates of childhood malnutrition and diarrhea, then those kids will have access to this milk and they'll get that protective immunological effect as if they were, you know, able to continue breastfeeding, you know, to one, two, three years of life, and then be able to uh, mitigate the impacts of diarrhea in those places. So it's uh, basically feeding uh, goat's milk to young children 
to uh, guard against infections and uh, especially diarrhea, right? That's correct, yes. Um, and uh, has this been tried? Do we know uh, whether it works? Well, there haven't been human trials with Elizabeth and James's uh, goat milk specifically. They've done a, a number of tests with pigs. They've done um, pigs who've been infected with E. coli and other diarrhea-causing bacteria, and then they fed them this goat milk. And what they saw was that the milk actually restored healthy gut microbial communities and those pigs recovered much faster and had less damage to their intestines than pigs that just had normal goat milk, uh, you know, a, a control milk. And so they've been able to demonstrate across a number of studies that there is this protective effect that happens. As I said, there haven't been human trials, but there, there have been other scientists who've used human lysozyme that's been isolated from transgenic rice. And they've tested that on children in Peru, and they've seen exactly what Elizabeth and James saw with their pigs. So similar uh, ability to restore those healthy gut communities and then help them recover with less damage to those intestinal walls. Now, we don't think of, uh, in this country anyway, we don't think of diarrhea as being such a big deal. Um, but I guess in the developing world, it really is. Yeah, it's, you know, not here in America. It's kind of not at the forefront of our minds. But elsewhere in the world, it's a huge problem. According to the World Health Organization, there are about six, 760,000 children under the age of five that die each year from diarrheal diseases. And there's this malnutrition diarrhea cycle that happens where if you're malnourished, you're more likely to have diarrhea. And the more you have diarrhea, the more degraded your intestines get and the more difficult it is to absorb nutrients. So it's this it's this real kind of downward spiraling cycle that kind of traps poor communities in these public health crises. Um, you know, that number that I listed is more childhood deaths than AIDS, malaria, and measles combined. So it is it is a real issue, like you said, not perhaps something that is very visible to us here in America, but elsewhere in the world, it's a, it's a big deal. So the idea then is to get these uh, goats, um, like the ones they're raising at Davis, with the with the gene, the HLZ gene, and uh, raise them in countries where uh, infant and childhood diarrhea is a big problem. Um, it sounds incredibly promising. Uh, why isn't it already happening? It is really promising, and the data is clear that, that, that this would have a positive uh, impact. But it's also important to remember that the animals that we're talking about are technically classified as genetic modified organisms. And so because of that, they're subject to regulation in the U.S. as a GMO. And what comes along with that is, you know, a real negative public opinion about GMOs and about genetic engineering that has really stymied the ability of these researchers in particular to pass the goats through the necessary regulatory hurdles to get them on the ground. So Elizabeth and James actually applied to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration back in 2011 to have the goat's milk be regulated as just regular, uh, just regular milk with this human lysozyme in it because Human lysozyme is something that we ingest every day, right? We we have it in our saliva, in our tears. It's something that, that isn't a foreign material to the human body. All they've done is put it inside of 
goat milk, which is, you know, a place that we're not used to, to having it. And so they applied for a status that's known as generally regarded as safe. And that was five years ago, and there's been no ruling. And until that happens, they can't move forward with anything more in terms of getting goats actually exported to other countries. It, has the FDA given any indication why it is not approving this particular modification? You know, they haven't yet. What they've continued to come back to the researchers is just for more and more data. So these goats that have been around since 1996 was actually when the first goat, her name was Artemis, was developed at Davis. And so it's been 20 years that they have been collecting data, doing more studies, just trying to prove that over multiple, multiple generations, because the goats that I met, you know, were the great, 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 great grandkids Mm -hmm. of Artemis, Mm -hmm. that there were no negative health impacts for the animals, and that the data clearly states that there is a positive health impact for humans. So they haven't said no, they just have said, we need more data. And they've said that for five years. Underlying all of this, of course, is what you call one of the most divisive scientific controversies of our time. And there, there is a great deal of animosity and suspicion toward the whole idea of genetic engineering. Yeah, I mean, more so than climate change or vaccines. It's really, you know, the biggest controversy that, that we have right now in our modern times. You know, according to a survey that the Pew Research Center did with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, there are only 30% of the public which believe that GMO foods are safe to eat. And that compares with 88% of scientists who believe they're safe to eat. So it's that 50-plus point spread is larger than any other scientific controversy. And and I, I think, you know, through talking to a lot of different people, that a lot of that comes from just a misunderstanding of the technology and that the conversation has been hijacked a bit from advocacy groups that aren't as interested in kind of the facts and the data and are more interested in scare tactics. Megan, scientists have been doing a a kind of genetic modification for centuries, right? Uh, It's called breeding. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Every time you select for a specific trait, and breed those out, you are changing the genomes of those species. But there does seem to be some sort of mental hurdle when you make the leap to genetic engineering in the lab where you're physically moving a gene from one organism to another. You know, people say that's not something that could ever happen in nature. So it's un- that unnaturalness is, I think, what creates a real suspicion of the technology and of the products that are created using that technology. Is there any scientific evidence to indicate that this is, in fact, a danger? You know, I think any scientist you talk to will say, we can't say there's no risk that something bad won't happen. You know, that I think they would be bad scientists if they said that. So I think across the board, there is acknowledgement that with a new technology, there is some inherent risk that something could go wrong. And I do think that it's that uncertainty that has really been capitalized on by groups that want to disparage these technologies. But so, for example, just two months ago, the National Academies of Science published a report where they assessed all the science available on genetically engineered crops for the last 30 years. And they concluded that, 
you know, we well, first and foremost, that we shouldn't be making generalizations about GMOs because there is differential risk for each one. And we tend to lump them all into one big group. And that's really kind of at the heart of where this public image crisis for GMOs lies, right? Because, you know, a Roundup Ready soybean is a really different organism than a goat that is producing a human lysozyme that every human in the world is exposed to every day. But we read them as the same because they were made with the same technology. And uh, when you say Roundup Ready soybean, you're you're referring to a uh, soybean that has been uh, kind of genetically inoculated against a, a weed killer called Roundup. Uh, what's especially interesting to me about your story is that this technology has been uh, completely accepted when it comes to soybeans and also corn, right? Yet when it comes to altering the genes of a goat to produce a uh, milk that has a, a protective effect, all the uh, regulations are different. It's fine to do this with crops, but it's not fine to do it with animals. Yeah, animals face a particularly uphill battle when it comes to regulation. And I should say, you know, maybe now's a good time to talk about what that regulatory structure looks like, because I think that's really important to the story. So all of our genetically modified organisms are regulated by something called the U.S. Coordinated Framework for the Regulation of Biotechnology. And that was established in 1986. And essentially, the U.S. government didn't want to write new laws to govern the new science of genetic engineering. So instead, they established that they had regulatory authority over GMOs using existing laws that were already in place, like the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act or the Federal Plant Protection Act. So we have regulatory agencies in the FDA, the USDA, and the EPA who all exercise some authority over plants and animals created with genetic engineering. And because there were using existing laws that had no notion of genetic engineering, plants and animals fit into that framework differently. And plants have been easier to regulate as genetically modified organisms because often the way that they were made was introducing the gene using a virus or a bacteria, a plant virus or a plant bacteria. And because those kinds of products, those crops, are regulated with the Federal Plant Protection Act, they came onto the market back in the 80s and haven't really had a problem getting regulatory uh, permissions since then. So I, I think there's something both in the regulatory structure that makes it difficult, even more difficult for animals to get through. But I think there's also something in the human consciousness where an animal seems very different to us than a plant. You know, an animal has eyes, it looks at us, we look back at it. And there's like an extra hurdle there about creating something in a lab that's a living, breathing animal versus, you know, a crop that's growing in a field. And so the the first animal that actually was passed through the regulatory process was the Aquabounty salmon. And that took 25 years, both because the regulatory agency had to figure out how that animal was going to fit with the regulatory laws. You know, this was an, an animal that they had never seen before, that they hadn't anticipated being able to be created, and because there was so much public input about the dangers of releasing a species with completely novel genetic material 
into the world and what the unforeseen consequences of that could be. So, you know, 25 years of taking public comments, of figuring out how exactly this animal could be regulated in a safe way. And so that, that's the kind of hurdle that these goats are looking at. The aqua bounty salmon, we should say, is a salmon that has a gene from a, a different fish uh, that allows it to do what? So it actually has two genes from two different fish. Uh, one of them is a growth gene for uh, an Atlantic salmon. And the other gene is actually from a what's called a, a pout. It's a cold water fish. And essentially what that gene does is it keeps the other gene turned on all the time. So salmon in the wild, their growth genes will fluctuate with the seasons. They'll grow more when it's summer. They'll go more into hibernation mode when it's cold. And the combination of those two genes allows that fish to grow at twice the rate that a normal salmon would grow. And so they can bring that fish to market in half the amount of time using less feed than a traditional conventional farm-raised salmon. One of the uh, scientists you spoke to lamented the fact that the first animal to be approved under this regulatory structure was a fish that grew twice as fast as uh, normal fish of its species. Yeah, I think it plays into people's worst ideas about what this technology can do. I think people are primed to see genetic engineering through the lens of a Monsanto who's, you know, a multi-billion dollar company. They patent their seeds and they have harsh practices in terms of, you know, suing farmers who wind up with that seed. And an organism where it seems like the push is to put more of these animals, you know, in, in a confined area, crank out more protein faster you know, with no regard for the animal's welfare, really underlines what people's worst fears are about what this technology can do. Megan, finally, what's the outlook for these uh, goats, Laurel and Grace and all the other goats at UC Davis? Is there any prospect that their milk will someday be used to um, prevent diarrhea in the developing world? Yeah. So, Right now, you know, the goats are hanging out at their in their pens out at UC Davis. They're being milked every day. That milk is, you know, going on ice. It's being stored. It's being tests are being continually run. It's being used for more and more uh, studies to try and keep the mounting evidence going until there's a warming of the regulatory climate. Uh, Elizabeth and James have been able to scrape together enough funding over the years to keep the herd going and they will continue to do so. So, But they do remain in a, in a holding pattern until the regulatory climate warms. And actually, there is evidence that that is happening and there are a bunch of changes afoot that could make their prospects more positive or more plausible going forward. The advent of gene editing in the last few years has really changed the game because it uses... Uh, a, an enzyme that is able to cut in a very precise, very specific way the DNA of whatever organism uh, the scientist is working with. And then it's really easy to insert whatever gene you want exactly in that place or just knock out a gene that's already there. And that's different from how the goats were produced. Back when scientists first started messing around with genetic engineering, you had to use vectors either from bacteria or from viruses to 
introduce that new gene, and it was a lot clumsier, it was a lot less efficient, there was the chance that a gene could wind up in a different place, or that there could be off-target effects that would impact the rest of the genome. So that was where a lot of the concern and criticism of kind of early genetic engineering came from, was that lack of precision, which is something that the advent of gene editing has really, has really changed the landscape of. It's a technology that has no ability to be regulated by the framework as it currently exists, so there's been a real push to update those policies. And it's expected that sometime in the next year or so that there will be an update to those protocols and perhaps even an entirely new protocol that actually creates laws that specifically govern genetically modified organisms and the technologies that were used to create them. So when those changes happen, I think there will definitely be a chance for projects like Elizabeth and James's to find some traction and to be able to finally come to fruition, you know, after all these years. I think one of the things I was really struck by in speaking with them was that despite how difficult it has been and the fact that they hope to make, you know, no money on these goats, they essentially give them away, that they have remained so stubborn and so dedicated to them after 20 years. And they're, they're cautiously optimistic that the changes that are afoot right now could mean that their goats could actually get into the hands of some real people within the next few years. Well, Megan, thanks so much for uh, coming on the Undark podcast and telling us about this controversy. Yeah, thank you, David. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Megan Molteni is a freelance science reporter and an editorial fellow at Wired Magazine. Her cover story on genetic engineering is on the Undark website at undark.org. And now we're joined by Paul Rayburn, who writes the Tracker column on media and science for Undark. Hi, Paul. Hi, David. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, although a little anxious about using my cell phone after reading your column, uh, tell us what you're writing about this time. Well, uh, first of all, I think you should definitely get rid of your cell phone and go back to an old party line phone that you have to crank up to get the operator. That's the only safe uh, communication device. Hello, Central. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. So uh, so as you probably know, and some of our listeners might know, a, a week or two ago, a study came out from the federal government that looked at radiation from cell phones and uh, tried to determine whether there's any risk. Now, this has been bouncing around for a long time. And it's certainly a colorful kind of idea that grabs the popular imagination. You can imagine holding your cell phone to your ear and slightly cooking that side of your brain is an easy thing to think about and to imagine. Uh, it turns out that it's a little bit more complicated than that, if you believe it. And, right, and we should say uh, this is a study by uh, an official government agency, although I can't say I ever heard of it. National Toxicology Program. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's you may not know it by name, but you know they probably know the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences in North Carolina, and this is part of that institute. It's part of NIH. So it's uh, mainstream stuff, and the finding in the study was a slightly increased likelihood of a certain kind of 
brain tumor. In humans? In, in rats. In rats. In rats, okay. So the rats were in a situation that we're not normally in. You know, radioactive material was strapped onto them for a number of hours every day. And most some of us have our cell phones almost strapped on, but most mm-hmm. of us not quite so bad. And so you can question the circumstances and whether it really reflects anything about human health. And indeed, any study in rats or mice, you know, you can question about its implications for humans. So what I try to do in my tracker column on the cell phone study is to try to take a look back since I've been at this for a while. And as soon as I heard about cell phones and radiation and possible damage, it made me think about possible human health damage from electric power lines and even household electrical wiring. This was a big issue in the late 80s, early 90s. And there were long-term studies and large studies, and they had similar findings. A little bit of an increase maybe in certain kinds of cancer and so forth. And so I wondered, I said, what happened to that? You know, we write all these stories all the time and we say, you know, more research and a larger study might finally tell us whether there's really a risk here or not. So I went back to David Savitz, who was one of the voices of reason, an epidemiologist at that time. And I said, so what happened? Are power lines a risk? Is household wiring a risk? And he said, well, he said, we found little, little bit of a signal that maybe there was an issue, but the real risk was somewhere between nothing and very small, and we ran out of ideas. We couldn't think of any more experiments to do. So it made me think that for science reporters who so often write, you know, more research is needed or a study now being initiated will finally tell us the answer. We write that kind of thing all the time. And in fact, in this case, and probably in a lot of other cases, we don't go back. And when we do go back to look, it turns out more research didn't tell us much more at all. How did the media cover this uh, latest announcement about the cell phone risk? Well, here was the interesting thing. This is the kind of thing where a media critic like myself gets ready to pounce at all the hyped stories, you know, talking about huge risks and overstating the case. That's not what I found. In fact, much of the coverage was very understated, which led me to ask a different kind of question. We worry about hyping stories, as we should, but are we sometimes so concerned about hyping stories that we understate the case? Uh, I mean, I think in this case, you know, there's reason to be interested in the findings and think about what might be done to advance study of this possible risk. But the stories were so low-key, many of them, that I think it's possible they underplayed it. So we don't want to hype stories, but we don't want to be afraid to say what the studies say if they raise a question. Yeah, I was. I went back, uh, after I read your column, I went back and looked at the New York Times' coverage of this study. And it's quite interesting. Um, the headline is, Study Linking the Risk of Tumors in Rats to Cell Phones Raises a Host of Questions. Uh, it's, it's as if we're debunking the study before we even say what it what it what it says. Right. I mean, in in theory, you know, some scientific research that does nothing but raise questions probably doesn't deserve any coverage at all. We already have questions. We don't need questions. <laughs> that's what that's what we're looking for do. answers. <laughs> I there there was one other thing that that uh, struck me about the New York Times coverage. I didn't. I haven't looked at at other media, but the Times played this on page 12, A12 of a Saturday paper. And in the old days, just the very fact that the story did not run on the front page was significant. Uh, it, It said something about the news editor's judgment of the significance of this story. That is, it's worth covering, but it's not 
such a big deal as to be on the front page. Nowadays, though, most readers who would see this article don't know what page of the paper it's on because it's just on the screen of their cell phone. Yeah, that's right. In fact, uh, you know, for people like me and like you who are used to reading newspapers and have been for a long time, you lose a little bit of grounding if you don't know where the story was. So sometimes I'm eager to see my print copy of The Times the next day and see how a story was played to get a better sense of what the editors thought. Because you're right, that's one thing that we lose in online news, there's no question. But just uh, returning to uh, the, the, the main point of your column, it's going to be a long time before we really know whether this risk that we all hear about and occasionally worry about, whether we can definitively put that to bed or whether there might as with the electromagnetic fields, whether there might be a little something there. Right. I mean, I think the what you want to do is look at two kinds of research. This was a laboratory study that exposed rats to radiation similar to what comes from cell phones. But uh, if we look at epidemiology, you know, cell phone use has exploded, I don't know how many zillion times over the last 15 years. We should be seeing a big rise in brain cancer, and we're not. So that's the comforting news that probably uh, we're not all going to keel over between now and our next Undark podcast. I hope everybody feels better. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly do. Uh, let's let's talk about one other uh, development in the past uh, week or so, and that is a uh, vote that was taken by the board, if I understand this correctly, of the National Association of Science Writers. Uh, what was that all about? So the National Association of Science Writers is a group that includes science journalists, and science public information officers, many of them at universities, nonprofits. And the journalists have had a slight upper hand. At one point, public information people could only be associate uh, members. That's changed. Uh, that changed a long time ago. And the journalists were left, their, their concession was that the officers of the group needed to be journalists. They couldn't be public information people. So for 20 years, it's been true that, that the officers of the organization must be science journalists, not public information people. And at the last meeting of this group, a motion was introduced to change the Constitution to allow public information people to become officers of NASW. This caused all kinds of sturm und drang. Uh, many reporters said they would leave the organization if they lost their hold on the officer's slots with this constitutional amendment. And some said they would be forced to leave the organization because work that they did for news outlets like the New York Times meant that they have to be free of any uh, sort of, you know, relationship with public information people in an organization like this. Very complicated thing. And it will be voted on in the fall at the next NASW meeting. What was interesting a week ago was the board of NASW which must be 12 or 14 people, which includes PIOs, public information people, unanimously recommended against adoption of this change. And Undark has a post on that by our editor, Tom Zeller, if anybody wants to look that up for some more detail. But this was, to me, this was quite a surprise. Didn't necessarily expect the board to weigh in as a board. And when they did weigh in, I thought, sure, there would be a difference of opinion there. But unanimously, they opposed this change. So we'll see. NASW is, there are more public information people than journalists in a group, and the constitutional amendment might be adopted. And this will cause some problems in the organization, and some people might leave. Now, 
for those people who are listening who are not science writers, they might reasonably ask, why do I care about this? And I think uh, the answer is that NASW has done a lot to encourage the careers of science writers. Science is covered better and more widely because of things NASW has done over the years. So if there are problems in the organization that could do a little bit of damage to science coverage in this country. So uh, those of us who are on the inside and watching this thing are a little bit nervous about what the outcome might be. This ties back into something we discussed last time, which is kind of the blurring of lines between science journalism and other kinds of science communication. That's right. Many more science writers now are freelance writers, not staff writers. And they're often in situations where they have to accept whatever assignments they can get. Some of us are lucky enough to write for Undark, and others do a variety of things. And they might mix journalism and public relations work in their daily work. So that's a little bit complicated. You know, would the New York Times want to publish a story by a writer who has also written for the National Institutes of Health, let's say? It's a complicated question. And some time ago, news organizations would take a hard line on that. Uh, some, I think, are starting to soften because there are fewer and fewer freelancers who exclusively do journalism. Well, I guess we're going to have to leave it there, uh, knowing that we are going to revisit this topic again and again. Yeah, this will come up again. There's no question. <laughs> uh, Paul Rayburn writes the tracker column for Undark, uh, and he joins us uh, every episode to talk about science and the media. Paul, as always, thanks. Thanks, and I'll see you next time, David. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until next time, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.